I'd like you to kind of open your Bibles this morning to Romans 6, and then you can just park there for a little bit. Uh, because I want to I want to go back to last week. As I was speaking last week and coming to the end of the message, I felt like there was a lot more I needed to say, and uh, it wasn't the right time, and there wasn't any time left to say it. And so uh, I felt as I prayed over it that the Lord would have me kind of pick up where we left off last week. And you may uh, recall that we were in Romans chapter 5, and in the fifth chapter it says, Having been reconciled through the death of his son, we shall be saved by his life. And that's the phrase that I want to focus on this morning and uh, expand a bit so that we can understand what it means to be saved by his life. And I remind you that the word saved does not just mean to escape hell and go to heaven. That's kind of the meaning that we have assigned to it. Uh, And uh, we ask people, are you saved? And that's kind of what we mean. Do you know that you're going to heaven? But that's not really what the Scripture means when it uses that term. The Scripture is talking about something much more, much fuller, much richer than uh, merely going to heaven. And I say merely because (laughs) that seems like a pretty big deal. But we need to realize as believers that our home in heaven is the inevitable consequence of being followers of Jesus Christ. Where else could we go? When we know Him and love Him and follow Him, He desires that we be where He is. And so our life in the future, in His presence in heaven, is simply if I can put it that way, the consequence of a life lived in Jesus Christ. It's the natural outcome. Salvation, on the other hand, is a much broader uh, reality and work in our lives that includes uh, not only our eternal destiny, but it, it, it talks about or deals with our wholeness being restored being rebuilt, as it were. Uh, We are fallen as human beings because of the infection of sin that Adam and Eve introduced into the world. And as a consequence of that, our lives are damaged and broken. And we need to be restored. And that brokenness extends to every part of our being our physical bodies are broken we we get sick we are subject to disease we age and then we die and that's a product of the fall but also our our spiritual and moral life is broken uh we are bent towards sin david said i was Uh, born in sin and in iniquity, my mother conceived me. He wasn't talking about uh, the act of conception. He was talking about from birth, from conception, 
he was infected with sin. And as a consequence, he was born in sin, and his life, as well as ours, is affected by that. And so, to be saved means to be delivered from all that brokenness uh, involves. God wants to restore us. He wants to heal us. He wants to uh, make us over in the likeness of Jesus Christ because we were originally created in His image and He desires us to live lives that reflect His glory. So we are saved by His life means that the life of Jesus is the power that God infuses into us through our relationship with Him that causes us to reflect the life of Christ Himself. A.B. Simpson wrote, and I want to read this quote to you from Christ in the Bible, chapter 5 in the third section. The secret of holiness is death and resurrection. Just pause there for a moment. The secret of holiness is death and resurrection. We have to die with Christ, and then we're raised in Christ, and that resurrection brings us to newness of life. He goes on to say, sanctification is not the improvement of our natural character, not even the cleansing of our spirit. It is to discover that we are wholly lost and utterly helpless, and to yield ourselves over to Him, to die to self as well as to sin, to our natural goodness as well as our natural sinfulness, and then receive a new life altogether from Him. Indeed, we are to receive Christ Himself, the risen One, as our new life. And then be as though we had been born out of heaven and were not the same Spirit that formerly lived in sin. Isaiah puts it this way regarding the very best that we have to offer. He says, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. In the New Testament, the scripture says, God hates even the garment that is spotted or tainted by the flesh. And so even at our best, we're falling short. That, that doesn't mean that there is not some vestige of God's image in us or that we have some uh, inclination uh, to, to love our family, to uh, donate to charitable causes, to uh, do good things. There are a lot of people who do good things. But when you stack it all up in, in the sum total of a life, and you put it all together, uh, it's a mess still. Because we are very, very broken people. 
And even though we may manage to polish up aspects here and there of our lives, if people could uh, open a window and see what goes on in here and in here, it would be very unsettling, wouldn't it? Would you like people this morning to uh, just kind of undo a zipper and see what your mind is thinking or what is in your heart? Um, probably not. And so we're, we're broken. And so sanctification is not to improve our natural character. God makes it very clear that the only solution for our natural character is death. We have to die in order to be raised to newness of life. There has to come an end to our self-life, which is self-centered, in order to come alive in Christ to a different kind of life. I want to just touch briefly on some preliminary considerations and some spiritual facts that we need. You know, sometimes uh, when you're doing a scientific experiment, you begin with what you know, and you begin to work from there. And there are certain uh, assumptions that we can make that the Bible gives us warrant to believe. And first of all, uh, the Scripture says, Jesus speaking, says, Abide in me and I in you, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now, Jesus means what he says. Apart from me you can do nothing. And immediately we take issue with that. Or more accurately, we read over it and say, yeah, yeah, I get it. But we don't get it. Because there are things that we do, and we know we do things that don't seem to have anything to do with Jesus. You drove here this morning, and I dare say that you were probably not conscious of Jesus driving your car. Uh, and so you, you can say to me, I drove myself. You know, I got myself dressed this morning. I got up this morning. I, I do things all day long on my own. Well, perhaps you do. But what is their eternal significance? What is their true spiritual value? You say, come on. How can driving a car be spiritual? Well, I can tell you how it can be unspiritual. And if it can be unspiritual, then it can be spiritual. Depends on who's in charge in the driver's seat. And is Jesus working through you? Or are you just out there on your own? Uh, I'll leave it at that, but you get what I mean. Jesus is literally saying, without me, you can do nothing. You cannot perform actions and deeds of eternal significance apart from Jesus Christ. But if you fully understand life in Christ, abiding in the vine, you can come to realize that your bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit who indwells us turns everything into a holy and sacred action. 
Brother Andrew, perhaps you've read his story about how he went to a monastery because he wanted to know God better. And he just desired uh, to go to a place in his day and time that would draw him close to God. And so he envisioned himself going into this monastery, uh, learning to become a monk in essence, and, and learning to meditate on scripture and uh, chant the the songs and the psalms and and uh, be devoted to God all day long. And when he got there, they said, uh, we want you to uh, peel potatoes in the kitchen. And it was like, that's not what I signed up for. I wanted to do something spiritual. But it was through peeling potatoes in the kitchen that God began to deal with him, with his attitudes, with his heart, with his servant heart, with or lack of it, and began to shape and mold him into the image of Christ. And he learned that peeling potatoes was a sacred act. And that was holy ground, because God was there. So... We need, to, we need to realize that our lives are intended to be holy all the time. And by that I simply mean filled with His Spirit. In fact, the Scripture says, Be holy, for I am holy. And then Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, Do not get drunk on wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, we often have trouble with that, with that phrase, uh, statement, clause, because um, it talks about getting drunk on the one hand and then being filled on the other. And we kind of confuse that, but it's really a parallel structure. It's the same thing. If you're drunk with wine, what do they call it when you get stopped for driving? Driving under the influence, right? DUI. So Paul says, don't be living under the influence of wine. Live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. In other words, don't let wine control your behavior. Let the Holy Spirit control your behavior. He's not talking here about filling up a glass or a pitcher or some uh, illustration like that. He's talking about coming under the dominion, under the influence, under the direction of the Holy Spirit. As if you were drunk upon Him. As if He were influencing all of your behavior. And you know how drunks are. When they're really drunk, man, they're a mess. I've learned through the years in counseling, I never try to talk to a drunk when they're drunk. There's just absolutely no purpose in it. Because they don't get anything. I just have to wait till they sober up. We are to be that way with the Spirit. So that we're full of Him. And everything is interpreted and guided and viewed through His presence. 
the Spirit-filled life is not an option for followers of Jesus Christ. It's a command. We're not given an option. We're told to be filled with the Spirit. To be holy. To abide in Christ like fruit on the vine. Then there are some facts that we need to uh, also consider from Romans chapter 6. And I'm not going to go into the detail of all of this in chapter 6, but I want to encourage you uh, when you get home today or this week, make this part of your Bible reading. Consider Romans 6, 7, and 8. Read them through several times. Because in, in Romans chapter 6, the Scripture says, We who have trusted Christ for, sal- for justification have also died to sin. We have been raised in Christ through His resurrection that we might walk in resurrected power. When we baptize uh, people here, and some people have asked if we baptize people. Yes, we do, and that's what that is back there in, in the opening. There's a baptistry, and we do that from time to time as people uh, commit their lives to Christ. And I typically have a baptismal formula. It's not just a rote memory thing. I'm trying to express the reality of truth. When a person comes into the baptistry and they share their testimony of faith in Christ, and uh, I baptize them, I typically say, buried with Christ by baptism into death, and raised with Him to walk in a brand new life. Because Paul tells us that's what happened to us when we trusted Jesus Christ. We were put into Him, and we died with Him. You weren't there 2,000 years ago to climb on the cross with Him, but according to the Scripture, God imputed to you, that is, He reckoned or counted to your account, the death of Jesus Christ as being your death, (coughs) and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as you coming up with Him out of death to sin to become alive unto God, that you might walk in new life and new power. Our old self was crucified with Him that the body of sin might be rendered powerless so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For the one who has died is free from sin. There's all kinds of (coughs) logic and and legal argument here for what Paul is saying. But in essence, God looks at us in Jesus Christ as having died to sin, that the, the body of sin, this old nature of mine, might be put to death, and that the power of sin... (coughs) could be rendered powerless. What do I mean by that? Some of you say, wow, temptation is just really tough. And I have such a hard time. And it just seems to overtake me. And I don't know how to stop it. And the scripture says that the power of sin... (coughs) 
<coughs> has been rendered powerless. The power of sin has been rendered powerless. It does not have power. You say, I have a hard time believing that. <coughs> I'm sorry, I don't know why I've got a dry throat and I've got a cough drops and water, so there's not much more we can do for that. You can pray for me. Um, the power of sin is broken. And we doubt that. We doubt that because... The enemy of our souls wants to persuade us that it's not true. He kind of tempts us. He, he pressures us. <coughs> he tells us this is a lie. He tells us it's not true. He tells us we cannot overcome. He, he tells us we're still in bondage. It's an illusion. You know, we're playing some kind of mental game here. But the reality is, as uh, my mother used to say, I'm a sinner, I was born in sin, and I'm going to sin till the day I die. And that's just the way it is. It took me a long time to understand that she was really in error there. And she really believed that. And as a consequence of that, she didn't make any effort to fight it. I'm not saying my mother was a horrible woman by any means, but wow. She had a temper, and when she got upset, she had a mouth. And there were a lot of things that just, I'll just leave it at that, but anyway. And her excuse was, I can't help it. That's just what I am. And the scripture says, that is not what you are. In Jesus Christ, you have been transformed. You are a new creation. And the power of sin has been broken so that you are free to live godly in Christ Jesus. <coughs> you have been released from the power of sin. And the devil does not want us to believe that. And he does everything in his power to persuade us to the contrary. And he defeats us at that very point. And <clears throat> the more we fail, the more we feel that, well, we're just, this is going to be my life until the day I die. In fact, that's probably the biggest disillusionment of following Christ for believers that I know that we're going to sin until I die and it's a constant war that goes on throughout my life and I'm going to mostly lose but at least I'm going to heaven but the scripture says there is no temptation taken you but such as every single person has faced at some time or another in their life. In other words, the devil doesn't have any new thing up his sleeve that no human being has ever faced. What's even more is perhaps uh, the most important thing is Jesus has faced it. <coughs> he has faced the same sin 
that you face, the same temptation, the same trial. And the scripture says, with every temptation, God, God will make a way of escape that you can endure it, that you can bear it, that you can emerge triumphantly over it. There is never a temptation that comes our way that we cannot successfully win the battle in Jesus Christ. Name it, pick it. Any temptation that has come to us, we can overcome and win in Jesus Christ. So how does this victorious, spirit-filled life become our personal daily experience? I may not finish this today, and if I don't, don't worry about it. I'll come back to it, because it's way too important to abbreviate. First of all, in Romans 6, beginning in verse 12, we have to begin with a decision to put our all on the altar. We come to Christ for salvation. And when we do, we, we recognize that we have sinned, that we are sinners, and that we need forgiveness. And we come to, to Christ and we ask Him in one way or another, however you do that, or did that, Lord, I know that I have sinned. I know that I deserve judgment. And I ask You to forgive my sin. I ask You to cleanse me and to come into my life and to make me over, transform me, repair and fix, and I'm broken, I need you. Save me. And he does that. He comes in and he becomes our Lord and Savior. But then there is another decision that we need to make. Besides the acknowledgement that we are sinners. And that decision has to do with how we're going to live our lives. And this is where a lot of believers have never come. And, and the time period between salvation and this decision can be literally in the same moment. Or it can be decades down the road. But the decision that we have to come to is to put our lives on the altar and surrender them to God so that He takes over control of our entire life. We have to willingly invite Him to do that. The Holy Spirit as some have said, is a perfect gentleman, and he will not come into our lives kicking down doors and grabbing up parts. He comes in and he asks permission. I want to take over and live through you. Will you allow it? And we have to make that decision. And so Paul says in verse 12 of chapter 6, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, 
that you go on obeying its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Now the word present means to devote, to give yourself over to the altar. It's a once and for all decision. It means that you take your hands off and ask God to take your life without reservation and your members as instruments of righteousness. What are your members? Well, your eyes, your, your, your mind, your hands, uh, your heart, your, your, your feelings, your emotions, your uh, sensibilities, all the aspects of your being, uh, your mouth. Give it to God. Let Him take over all the members of your body as instruments to be used for righteousness by Him for His glory. For sin shall not be master over you. You're not under law, but under grace. We have been freed from sin. We have been freed from law. We are invited to come to the altar and give God our lives, lock, stock, and barrel, as they say, every bit of us, and say, Lord, take over. I want you to have every part of me. I, I don't want to be in charge of anything. I want you to take control. And we have to make this decision before the Holy Spirit is free to begin operating and functioning out of our lives by taking possession of our temple, our whole body, and its members. Secondly, we must recognize that as long as we attempt to live by law-keeping, we remain under that covenant. You can move on through chapter 6 and go into chapter 7. And in the early part, Paul gives an illustration about marriage. And he talks about as long as a spouse is living, you're under a covenant of marriage to that spouse. But if one of you dies, the other one is freed from the covenant. And he uses that illustration to point out that Jesus Christ died to the law on our behalf, that we might die with Him, so that the covenant of law-keeping could be broken. And the reason that was done was so that we could live a different kind of way. The covenant of law-keeping said, do this, don't do that. Do this. Don't do that. If you do that, you are sinning and God will deal with you. If you don't do that, you are sinning by omission and God will deal with you. There, there are all these rules and regulations that you must keep. And Jesus died to liberate us. To completely free us from the law. We are no longer under the law. Someday I should spend some time on that. It'll scare you all. We're no longer under the law. God tore the fence down. 
the, the rules have been removed. You don't believe me. <laughs> I can tell you're saying, yeah, but. <clears throat> so that we could live in freedom by the Holy Spirit. What Paul is telling us in these chapters is when the Holy Spirit is in charge, we don't have to worry about thou shalt, thou shalt not. We only have to live by the Spirit. He will guide us. He will speak to us when we shouldn't. He will motivate us when we should. Furthermore, He will empower us. <clears throat> it's not just simply a motivation. It's motivation with power. It's warning with power. He says, don't do that. And we say, yes, Lord, and His power goes to work to give us victory. Because Jesus wouldn't do that. And because Jesus wouldn't do it, we won't do it in the Spirit. <clears throat> and whatever Jesus would do, we will do. I can safely tell you this. If you understand what I'm saying right now, live by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Live by the Spirit, and you will be in perfect harmony with the character of God. You will not need rules. You will not need laws. You will not need a whole list of do's and don'ts. You just need a relationship. By the Holy Spirit, with the living God, who will guide you in all ways in harmony with His character. And you don't have to worry about it. Do you see how freeing that is? How liberating that is? That's just amazing. That God will do it all in and through us. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Law-keeping as a means of pleasing God is so deeply ingrained in our mind. That learning to walk by the Spirit, putting no confidence in the flesh, is a difficult path in the beginning. We are so accustomed. And, and let me kind of explain how, how it works in, in practice in your early journey in, of life in the Spirit. You're going along and the enemy presents some temptation. And the Holy Spirit <clears throat> says, you don't need to do that. And you say, got it. I understand. Now, <clears throat> step aside and, and watch me. I'll be victorious. I, I've, got, I've got this powerful life now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull it off. No, you're not. You're going to fall flat on your face. Every time, you're going to fall flat on your face. Let me give you the unhappy news. 
And this is almost as shocking as the fact that there is no longer any law for the believer. God will allow us to fail in the greater interest of learning to depend on Him. God is not worried about you failing. He's a very big God. He can manage. He's not worried about you failing. He's more concerned that you quickly come to terms with your helplessness. With your inability to perform. With your need for Him. That He will let you fail. In order to drill it through our thick skulls. You can't do this without me. As a matter of fact, God will even orchestrate circumstances designed to test you. To put you in the crucible where you will have the experience of learning to trust. It will be a a cauldron, a crucible, a fire that you cannot win, stand, endure. So that you will ultimately and utterly cast yourself upon him in helplessness. Lord, I can't. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I can't overcome this and God in essence says at last you're getting it we're scared to death of failure we're afraid that our our lives are going to come unglued and God is not all that worried about it because he's big enough To handle our failure. You've heard my story. There are many other stories. I I meant to bring two books with me this morning to recommend to you. And and I left them at home. My apologies. But one of them is They Found the Secret. It was edited and collected by V. Raymond Edmund. And they found the secret is the story of many, many people, most of whom you probably have heard of, as to how they came to the end of their own ability and learned to cry out to God for the power of His Spirit, to to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And and when you read their stories, it's amazing. And, And people that you might not ever have thought Um, came to understand what it was to live the Spirit-filled life. The other one was a book by Andrew Murray called The Believer's New Covenant, which talks about this brand new life in Christ. Freed from the old covenant and brought into the new covenant. And both of those books will give you some insight and some understanding into what God is offering us here. But one of the things God wants 
to get through our minds is that we cannot successfully live the spirit-controlled life in our power. And we have to become convinced of that in our experience. Many people through the years have called this the deeper life or the path of the cross. And it's that journey in the spiritual life that takes us to the end of ourselves. Some people get there sooner than others. Other people have colossal disasters. Whereas other people, maybe they don't have public humiliation, but they come to some kind of failure within. And they learn that they, they don't have any strength in themselves. When the church that we started in Tennessee split and uh, things came unglued, I learned some things about myself that were scary. I, I really thought that uh, I was better than that. And this is one of the surprising things that, that we need to find out. We're not better than that. In fact, we're pretty sorry. God loves us. I, I talked about self-image a week or so. God loves us. You, you can be confident of that. You are valuable to Him. You are worth the death of His Son in His eyes. He gladly paid that price for you. But that does not mean that you are a success. God has set his affection upon you and he wants to make you in his image a success. Spiritually speaking, a success. And he will do so by bringing you to the end of yourself. So if you look at the end of Romans chapter 7 and uh, you read through that whole experience of Paul, the things that I wish I could do, I can I don't do, and the things that I hate doing, I find myself doing all the time. I find a principle operating within me, a law of sin, that the one who wants to do right always ends up doing wrong. Does that sound familiar? Do you recognize that experience? Paul, this is Paul saying this, and some people have said, when in Paul's life did this occur? And there's all kinds of scholars that give all kinds of answers. Some say, well, it occurred before he met Christ. He was struggling. No, that didn't occur before he met Christ. He said, I was perfect. He said, touching the law, my pedigree, my background, my uh, studiousness, I was perfect concerning the things of the law. Well, except for one little thing, I... I had a trouble, a problem with coveting. The interesting thing about coveting is you can't see it unless you catch somebody with that uh, green envy in their eyes. But coveting is an internal problem. Paul said, I, I couldn't deal with that, but he had kind of rationalized it away. He said, I, I kept all the law. I was a perfect Jew. I was a perfect Pharisee. That was not before he became a Christian. 
It was after Romans 6, 12. When he determined that he would surrender totally to God and live for him alone. And he discovered that the harder he tried, the more he failed. And he comes to the end of it in verse 24 and he says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? He comes to the final conclusion earlier, there is in me that is in my flesh nothing good. And then he says, I'm a wretched man. Who's going to deliver me? How am I going to get out of this mess? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. And then he takes us into chapter 8 and he says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through me, my flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in His body, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk, according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus came to set us free so that the requirements of the law would be fulfilled in us and through us by His power who walk not after the Spirit, or not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Where are you in the process? Have you come to the altar and devoted yourself completely to God? Have you had that experience? In essence, that's the initial fullness of the Holy Spirit. I didn't say indwelling, I said fullness. Indwelling comes at conversion, but there's His fullness that is offered for those who invite him to take control. Have you done that? Are you on a journey where you find yourself constantly failing and wonder what is going on? The harder I try, the worse I get. <laughs> I thought this was going to get better. God's trying to get your attention to understand. Stop trying. Stop trying to be a good Christian. When did you ever hear a preacher say that? Stop trying to be a good Christian. Every morning when you get up, say, Lord, my life is yours. Just live through me. If you don't do it, it's not going to get done. But I, I want to let you do it. So, so do whatever you want to do. My life is yours every day. Where are you in the process? Have you come to Romans 8? Have you learned the secret that they found? 
that full dependence on God equals spiritual victory? Or are you still trying to do it on your own? God is just waiting for you to give up and let him take control. And if you have come to some point in your life where you say, you know what, I've given myself over to the Lord. I've made that commitment and I know that I can't do anything, but something's happened. I'm out of whack. I thought I knew what it was like to live in dependence on the Spirit, and I feel like I'm regressing. Have you had that experience? All that means, my friend, is that you have stepped into the flesh. You've stepped out of the Spirit into the flesh. And all that is needed is to just simply reconnect. Just go back. Lord, obviously I've taken over. And I want to give it to you again. I want you to take over. Um, So much more I'd like to say. I'm not going to. I'll let you uh, steep on that for a while. (laughs) But where are you in the journey? Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to understand Lord Jesus, you are not desiring to improve our natural selves and make us better. You are desiring that that old nature be reckoned as dead so that you can take over and live your life in us. And I pray this morning that we would fully surrender to you in that respect and that you would live your life through us and wherever we find that we are disappointed or frustrated with our failure let us simply acknowledge that's who I am but I don't have to stay that way your spirit can live through me in victory And Father, where we don't even see our blind spots open our eyes, that day by day we might be more like Jesus. I ask it in his name. Amen.